Please open your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 1 is where we're at. We're continuing with our examination of the first prologue of the book of Judges. We're going to be starting in verse 9 tonight. I had hoped that we would get through the rest of the of this first prologue this evening as I prepared the sermon. I realized I had sadly overreached on what I was attempting to do, and we will not finish the first prologue this evening, but I pray that what we do cover, you'll find it profitable. So it's been two weeks since we uh, have been in Judges together, and last time we were looking at the battle for Jerusalem in the renewed campaign by the Israelites for the land of Canaan, the promised land. And that was in verse 8. So moving on from verse 8 to verse 9, reading on, we see the campaign continues with a turn to the south. Judges 1 verse 9 reads, And afterward the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. So the second phase of the campaign that we're in now opens with the phrase, afterward, the men of Judah went down. Whereas in the first part of the phase, the first phase, Judah went up country. And the hill country in this verse refers to the hills of the central range running directly south from Jerusalem. And the Negev is the dry plain the desert area south of these hills. And the lowland referred to, which is, which is uh, in, in Hebrew, the Shef Hala, is the lower country between the central highlands and the coastal plain, to give you an idea what's going on. And there's been some people who have said that, you know, reading Judges is like reading a geography lesson. It's like there's all these places that you're trying to figure out where they're at. So, um, obviously that's not that's not the Lord's message to us, the, the, the geography. So if that doesn't resonate, it's not that important, really. So moving on, Judges verse 1, verse 10, we read, And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishah and Ahiman, and Tal Ma'ai. Judges, excuse me, Joshua chapter 15. Joshua, the previous book, verses 13 through 19, parallels this account that we just read in verse 10. And in the book of Joshua, it says about this, this, um, this battle in, in Hebron, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion of, among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, Arba was the father of Anak, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. So we have these two pictures of this account, and we have to, we have to reconcile them, we have to figure out what's going on. Um, 
So the account from Joshua gives a picture of a decisive victory against what is referred to as Kiriath Arba, or in English, the city of Arba. And in Joshua chapter 14, we read that Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, which is one of the tribes of the Canaanites. And in Joshua chapter 15, we read that Arba was the father of Anak. And the descendants of Anak, the son of Arba, were the Anakim. So the Anakim, who are they? Well, they're one of these giant clans that we've started to talk about. And they're primarily associated, as we see, with the city of Hebron, also known as Kiriath Arba, or the city of Arba, named after this man, Arba, one of their, one of their first chieftains. And in Joshua, again, in chapter 11, informs us that they occupied a larger territory. And Joshua 11.21 says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debar, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. Now this term, devoted to destruction, is very important. Um, it's, uh, it's our translation for a Hebrew term, harim. And harim basically is a command from God in a holy war that all living creatures in the place that he commands be devoted to destruction be wiped out. God is ordering all life to be annihilated. That is something that we have to examine. We have to deal with. Why would God do that? This is the same God that we find in the New Testament. This is the God that we praise for his grace and mercy. Why is it that he would order every living thing in certain cities to be destroyed? And when the Israelites fail to do it, there's consequences for them. They are disobedient to that. When they take plunder from those cities, there's, there's consequences for that, unless the Lord God has allowed it, which most often he does not. Everything is banned. The key is to who these people are and the fact that they are Anakim, that they are members of a giant clan. Now we find Harim in the conquests of Canaan, always associated with cities that are associated with giant clans. These people are so evil, so wicked, and so ill-begotten. They're not to be in existence, actually, that God orders them destroyed. They must be wiped out. Here we find that Joshua drove some surviving Anakim to the coastal cities of the Philistines. Joshua 11.22 tells us there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. But in Judges, we just read in verse 10, depicts Judah battling and defeating these three chieftains, Shisha, Ahaman, and Talmai. 
These three are named as chieftains of the Anakim. They're sons of Anak, who were driven out of Kiriath Arba, the city of Arba, or Hebron, by Caleb and Joshua. But we're, are we dealing with them again? How is it that we find the same people in the same city in a later battle? That's what we have to determine. Or did the writers just lose track of what's going on? Do we have a discrepancy? Do we have a conflict? Is there a contradiction? No, there's not. In the various accounts of the Wars of the Conquest, it appears that these giant clans, the Anakim, the Amorites, and the the Rephaim, to name just a few of many, they were difficult to eliminate. Even though Caleb had prisoned had previously driven them out to the coast, they returned. And the proper names for these three Anakim chiefs that I've been stumbling over, Shishay, Ahaman, and Talmai, we see in Judges that they are now used as the names for their respective tribes or sub-tribes in the book of Judges. Not necessarily that these chieftains themselves are the ones being driven out. But their sub-clans, if you will, are the ones that are being dealt with. The point behind all this, it's meaningful. It's not just trivia. It means that the Israelites failed to hold the territory that they had earlier seized, and they needed to retake it. This brings us to our first point, which is that God does not modify his decree to accommodate our disobedience or our failure to carry out what he would have us carry out. So we're not told specifically why Judah failed to hold Hebron after the first driving out of the Anakim. Their failure to occupy the land that God had given to them meant that they had to go back and do it again. God did not change his mind because the task was too hard or because Judah failed to complete the assigned mission. God doesn't say, well, that's okay. You did your best. Didn't work out. We'll move on. No. They had to go back and finish what they started and were unable to complete. So we we can resonate with this, I think, because we've all met with failure, and we will meet with failure in our lives as long as we are on this earth. Sometimes the failure is beyond our control. Sometimes the failure is within our control. Sometimes it's because we misjudge. We misjudge others. We misjudge ourselves. Or we misjudge the circumstances. Sometimes we're just plain disobedient. We overreach, we underreach, or we just don't listen. But when we learn from failure, we can turn disadvantage to advantage. When we fail to carry out God's commands, circumstances will eventually bring us back to whatever it is that we don't want to deal with. God will have us deal with these issues in our lives, no matter how hard we try to run from them. Besides Israel having to retake this land, we see this exemplified in the account of Jonah. Think think of that. Think of that famous prophet who tried to go to the far ends of the known world 
to avoid doing what God would have him do, which was preach in Nineveh. But God, through extraordinary circumstances, think about what God went through, what Jonah had to go through to be brought back to his mission. God was not going to let him escape from that. He brought him back and Jonah did preach in Nineveh as God commanded. So God's sovereignty trumps our fears, our desires, our inclinations, even our prejudices. We cannot run from God. But even the wicked who flee from God their entire lives cannot win that race. They're only allowed to run for so long. Eventually, they will face this encounter they have run from with God on the day of judgment. But as a Christian, why would you want to run from what God would have you do? Why would you want to run from the circumstances God puts in your life? If you do, you, you, you must realize we have to think about this when we don't want to do what God clearly would have us to do, is that we are in disobedience when we do that, brothers and sisters. So God caused the Israelites to face the inhabitants of the land that made them seem in the Israelites' own eyes to be like grasshoppers. The Israelites were frightened of these people, and rightfully so by the way they're described and the way their cities are described as fortified. They're very militaristic people. They're very violent people. They must face them again. They drove them out once only to let them return and occupy the land that God had taken from the Canaanites and given to Israel. God turned the retreating Israelites around and had them face off again against the dread Anakim to retake the land. We have to understand that the Anakim were completely wicked, physically and spiritually wicked. Think about what we face today. We're facing the same sort of foes, I would suggest. We're facing wicked Mortals that are in opposition to God, that are in opposition to Christ's church. And wicked mortals never operate independently of spiritual wickedness. The powers of darkness operate in both realms, the seen and the unseen. So our spiritual battles, although we may play them out here against other humans, against flesh and blood, that there are wicked spiritual beings involved in this that we're often unaware of. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We can see in our world today, how the retreat of the church from territory allocated to us by God has allowed wickedness to grow. And I'm thinking of in the, in the spheres of education and government and culture. Past retreats require renewed campaigns of conquest. 
Judah did not say when they were told to go and take the land again, did not say we tried it and it didn't work. They didn't say, let's try to accommodate and get along with the tribes of the Anakim. Maybe we can reach a compromise. No, that would have been wicked on Judah's part to do that. The failures of physical Israel, ethnic Israel, serve to teach spiritual Israel, that includes us, the church, that our tasks are not often quickly and easily carried out. But no matter how difficult, no matter how long it takes, whatever God decrees will be completed. Moving on to Judges 1, verses 11 through 15. It's interesting here. This section of Judges is lifted directly out of Joshua chapter 15, verses 15 through 19. These two accounts are identical in Hebrew, although they're translated slightly different in English. So this repetition is puzzling. I probably read a good dozen commentaries on this to see what different men would say. There's nothing in the text that we read that tells us why this account is being retold in Judges. And what I found in these commentaries is most commentators either do not comment at all, they just pass over it, or they merely cross-reference them without explanation. But I think there is an explanation. The explanation is that we're in a prologue. And as we've talked about in a prologue, we are examining and and what's being set up is the context in the background. That's why this is being repeated. So I'm going to read Judges 1, 11 through 15. And if you're interested, the, 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 the account that matches it is Joshua 15, 15 through 19. So you could turn to, any, to either one of these and you, you would hear, you would follow along, it would be the same thing. Slight differences, like I said, in English. But in Judges it says, from there they went up against the inhabitants of Debir. In Joshua it says, and he went up there against the inhabitants of Debir. But they and he, and he went are inserted. Their additions to the text are not in Hebrew. <clears throat> Moving on, verse 12, and Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Akshah, my daughter, for a wife, and Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So this seems to be a kind of an innocuous event. You know, why would it be repeated? If, and when exactly did it happen? Well, I suggested it happened at the time of Joshua, and now we're in the time after Joshua died. 
But we have to remember that the book of Judges is about human failures. And the prologue that we're in draws on the successes from the time of the great leader Joshua as a reminder of what once was, what should be, and what will be. Now, if that strikes a chord that sounds kind of familiar, remember that Joshua is a type for Christ. So that sounds like maybe the God who was, who is, and will be. The three characters, though, that are involved in this account bargain over a land deal that play, and that plays an important role, this land deal at the time of the judges. <clears throat> Caleb serves as an example of the men that Judges chapter 2, verse 7 talks about as the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel, and during whose lifetime the people had served the Lord. This is from a time of obedience and faithfulness to God. Othniel, he will appear in the book of Judges, as as you may know. He's the first judge that we've come across uh, in this book. And he sets a standard. He sets a very high standard for all the judges who will follow him. And Aksah, Caleb's daughter, is offered as an incentive to the warrior who can take the city of Debir. So Othniel wins her as his wife by his military victory. And Aksah has her new husband bargain with her father for land. And Caleb provides this land. But Aksah is not satisfied with it. It's so dry, she calls it the land of Negev, the desert. She asks her father for a spring to go with the land so the land may be watered. For the young couple to prosper, a water source is needed. They're in an agrarian culture or a pastoral culture. For their crops or for their animals, they need water. And her father, Caleb, gladly fulfills this request. This considerate treatment that Aksah receives during the time of Joshua stands as a foil to what we're going to see in Judges, to the cruel and unfeeling treatment of women during this period. There's horrible things that are done to women during the time of Judges. So this is a standard for us. It's like what the writer is saying is, look, this is how a woman should be treated by her husband and by her father. She is honored. She is provided for. That was the role of the husband and the father in those days. Caleb and Aksah stand in contrast. We think of uh, what we're going to come to eventually in Judges chapter 11, the judge Jephthah, who makes a rash, wicked vow that his daughter has to pay the price for. Unthinkingly, perhaps, we'll see, exposes his daughter to be sacrificed. Later, The Benjamite, whose wife is, (laughs) excuse the language, we have to be blunt, his wife is gang raped 
and he callously throws her on the donkey, takes her home, and cuts up her hopefully dead body into 12 pieces and sends it out to Israel. This is horrible stuff that's going to happen. We look at this as an example of that is not to be. This is what should be. God is giving us a balance here. So, we're not to, we, so we don't see it as, oh, they were just so wicked in those days. No, what we are to see in the time of judges is that things go horribly, horribly wrong. And we're to pick up on that. This brings us to our second point. The accounts of events of God-honoring and God-fearing times and the actions of God-honoring and God-fearing people should serve as a barometer for us in evil or dystopian times. We find this occurring in the prologue, in prologue one of the book of Judges. I think that's what's going on, as I just explained. Admittedly, we have a tendency, especially as we grow older, to romanticize the good old days. That, that's, a, that's a weakness that we all have. And, and if you haven't fall, fallen victim to that yet, just give it time, you will. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what we're seeing. This isn't like the good old times. <clears throat> and I've spoken with many Christians over the years who think the past is irrelevant to their lives, even historical accounts in the Bible, believing that what matters is the here and now, and of course the hereafter, but from a usually a, a very mostly personal point of view. And it's not surprising that Christians think this, because this is the prevailing view of our culture. This point that I'm trying to make is a Christian version of the old adage, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And this idea, which was presented by the philosopher George Santayana, and also Winston Churchill said this, and it's really difficult to figure out who said this first. It, go, it goes back, I think, much earlier than these two men. This view holds that mankind can progressively improve through the work of remembering and choosing a different course over one's predecessors. But what it does is it ignores our sinful nature and our yearning for a human or excuse me, a humanist utopia. When Paul counsels us, like he does in Philippians 4, verse 8, to think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, Paul is not talking about abstract ideas. He's not telling us just sit and meditate and just think about, you know, the idea of these things existing. No. He wants us to think about actual concrete things in human experience. We are to put it into the proper context of how these things interface with our life, how we are to bring these things into our world. This is what this pericope of Caleb, Othniel, and Aksah serves to do. Biblical history and church history 
provide a standard of measurement of human experience that puts flesh, so to speak, on God's law, which is our baseline standard. So when we see how Aksa is treated by her husband and father, we know things have gone wildly off the rails when we see later in the book of Judges how at this time in Israel's history, how horribly, specifically women, but others, are treated. And I think we should judge our own times in a like manner. Now the next set of verses I want to talk about is verses 16 through 18, which reads, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and devoted it to destruction. Again, Harim, every living thing is to die. So the name of this city was called Hormah. Judah also recaptured, excuse me, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So who is this person, the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law? Well, in the Hebrew, the, the definite article is missing. It's just who, it's, it's Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. So there's, some, there's textual difficulty there. Because um, commentators are puzzled over the fact that the definite article is missing, as is Moses' father-in-law's name. So it reads literally in Hebrew, sons of Kenite, the father-in-law of Moses. Now in various books in the Old Testament, we're given three names for Moses' father-in-law. And I really don't want to try to untie that knot, because frankly, I can't. But um, in, in some places, he's called Hobab. Uh, in some, it's Reuel, and in others, it is Jethro. So <clears throat> we could devote a whole study to that. But just know that we are talking about Moses' father-in-law. But what I want to focus in on is what is meant by Kenite. I think this is, this is the uh, more important fact here. We find in Numbers, in Exodus, uh, in a couple places that... Moses' father-in-law is identified as a Midianite. While in Judges, in a couple of places, he's identified as being a Kenite. And I think what's going on is that the Kenites are possibly a subset of the Midianites. So you have uh, a sub-tribe of the Kenites within the tribe of the Midianites. <clears throat> very interesting is that archaeological discoveries of settlements of the Kenites have found inscriptions in stones of Yahweh, W-H, excuse me, Y-H-W-H, the Tetragamaton. And secular archaeologists take a look at this, and they all have bought into the um, theory of the history of religion school. Uh, you may be familiar with that. I've mentioned it before, but it's the idea that religion is like everything else. It goes through an evolutionary process and that humankind had come up with religion to deal with social pressures and the difficulties and dangers of human existence and that this, this germ of religion that was, that was imagined then grew and branched into different types of religions. 
And the secular archaeologists find these inscriptions. And they go, ah, aha, we found it. This is where the Israelites got the idea of Yahweh from these Kenites. Well, you, as, as you can often do with things like this, if you just reverse it, I think that's where the truth is. Now, Moses had asked his father-in-law and his father-in-law's people to accompany them on their journey in the wilderness, which apparently they did because we find them here in the book of Judges. It's evidence that they absorbed Yahweh worship into their tribal religious system, whatever that was. They are probably very synchronistic. So Yahweh just was absorbed as one of their tribal gods. But what's important to realize is it confirms the fact that the Kenites were with the Israelites in Canaan. So that confirms what the Bible has to say about this. The Kenites, though, realize they are not in a covenant relationship with the one true God, that they are not worshiping him in truth. They don't understand him in truth. So why are they important to our discussion? You know, that's, that's interesting, this archaeological, archaeological discovery. It's interesting that how it confirms a biblical story. But we need to realize that these people, the Kenite Midianites, are not committed allies of the Israelites. In Judges chapter 4, we're going to see that Heber, the Kenite, makes peace with the king of Canaan, Jabin. Jabin, who then oppresses Israel for 20 years until Barak, the judge, delivers Israel. In chapter 6, Midian itself oppresses Israel for seven years until the judge Gideon delivers Israel. And here in verse 16, we read that Midian, excuse me, the Kenite Midianites settled with the people, the people being Israel. So they were taken into their camp. Like the Judahites of the Adonai Bezek incident that we looked at earlier, verses 5 and 7, the Kenite Midianites compromise Israel's mandate to eliminate the Canaanites. Instead of destroying the city and its population, what do they do? The Kenites settle down with these Canaanites. They make nice with them. They apparently make a treaty and they live amongst them, thereby sowing the seeds of canonization again that sprout and flourish in the following chapters of the book of Judges. And this brings us to our third point, and that's that alliances with those outside of spiritual Israel, that is us, the church, may seem advantageous in the short term as they did to physical Israel when the Kenites were asked to come with them because they knew the route. They knew where the water was. They knew how to travel through this land. So there was an advantage to having them along in the short term. But in the long term, they were destructive, just as those outside of our spiritual Israel can be destructive to us in the long term. 
Moses pointed out to the Kenites that their association with Israel means they will be blessed through Israel. However, these people were not under covenantal obligation to Yahweh, to the Lord God. They did not owe reciprocal loyalty to God as Israel did. Thus, they did not share the same mission. They didn't have the same goals and objectives. God had not given that to them. He had given those goals and objectives to the Israelites. Israel has been commanded by God to drive the Canaanites out of the land. The foreigners that Israel allowed into their camp had not been given this mission. That was not their task. Eventually, Israel's so-called ally makes peace with Israel's Canaanite oppressor. And then they themselves become oppressors and enemies of Israel. In the church, us, we're often tempted to make alliances with those outside for moral, political, or social reasons. And this may seem necessary to us, may seem good to us, because often the church is seemingly lacking in power from a human perspective. Whether that be political power, financial power, or social power, we may tell ourselves our voice is just too small to be noticed. And why is this a problem? Well, ultimately, it's a matter of authority. We, the church, are always under the ultimate authority of God. Our worldview is governed by God's sovereignty over all things. In opposition to the prevalent worldview of man's sovereignty, we are guided by God's word. God's word is irrelevant to those outside the church today. That wasn't always the case, but it's certainly the case today. And the church is led by men placed in leadership by God. Think about those outside the church. Those are people that are impressed by status from celebrity, from power, from money. And those things, celebrity, power, and money, are actually detrimental to godly leadership by a shepherd. How many pastors have we seen that have failed because of that when they became somebody? Our long-term goal, which is the furtherance of God's kingdom by the making of disciples through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, is unique to the church alone. It doesn't belong to anyone else. No one else can engage in this great commission, this task given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ, as recounted in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verse 19. Think about that. No one outside the church can participate in that. It's reserved for us alone. And Christ makes this bright, sharp line, a distinction between believers and unbelievers. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We have to think, have we let the Kenite Midianites in your camp, or have we joined their camp? Now, I'm not talking about people who come to our church services, people who are interested in Christianity, people who want to learn what the Bible has to say. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about power, worldly power, 
and our attraction to it, our fatal attraction to worldly power. That's what I'm concerned with. Because those who are not yet in the church, that are not yet part of spiritual Israel, all of us have been in that position. And we came into the church, we became part of spiritual Israel by the gospel being presented to us, by sitting in a church and listening to the word being preached, by having someone witness to us. I just want to make it clear that I'm not saying that we, that we just withdraw from the world into a monastery or a nunnery and have nothing to do with the outside world. That's, that would be abandoning our Great Commission. Just think, the life of the righteous, the people of God, is to be completely different from that of the wicked. And, and as we move forward in our times, we're seeing the difference between the, t- the two come into stark contrast. Where there was a time not that long ago for many of us where it was hard to tell the difference because our culture was a Christian culture. But now it is certainly not. It's a pagan culture. What happens to someone when they forget their core identity, who they are, what their mission is, why they are put in a certain place? I experienced this before I was a Christian, when I was a young police officer. I worked in a plainclothes assignment. I didn't get to work undercover, per se, because... Everyone said I, I looked like a cop, even though I had long hair and a big handlebar mustache. Um, so I was not allowed. And, and, and the area I worked, you know, white guys really couldn't buy drugs and do gun deals and things like that for the most part. Uh, but I could hang out with, with biker gangs. I looked like a biker. So um, there was two men I had worked with. We'd started as very, very young police officers in a very small, very exclusive area. And we were bored to tears as young officers. We wanted action and assignment, uh, excitement. And we transferred to the most exciting place that we had ever heard of, where there were shootouts every night, where the police department was under siege and, and had been fired upon, where, where other departments called it Sniper City because the officers were being shot at. I went to work there, and it was like being in Vietnam. It was like it being in a war zone. And these two other guys I worked with, my really good friends, we hung out together, we rode motorcycles together. I, like I say, was working in this plain clothes detail. One of my good friends, he was still working patrol, and he made friends with some guys who rode motorcycles in, in his beat. And so he told me, he met these guys, and they're really, really cool. And, you know, let's go on a motorcycle ride with them. So I went, and I realized that my very good friend had made friends with outlaw bikers. In the motorcycle ride I went on, I found myself in a very bad, dangerous place where there were meth deals going on in front of me. And some of the people I found out later that knew I was a police officer thought I was undercover working there trying to make a case against them. And I found out later they were planning on jumping me and leaving me out, the, out in the middle of nowhere. That didn't happen, obviously. I was kind of ignorant to that fact until later. 
But what had happened to this one guy, this one friend of mine, and he brought in another officer that had, you know, was the third of us that had come from this uh, exclusive um, department. There's this term that's very dangerous for officers working undercover. So what often happens is what was called going over to the dark side, that there's something in our human nature when we're working assignments like that, police officers very often go bad, that they find themselves wanting to be bad guys. And that's what happened to these two guys. They both lost their jobs. They lost their careers. One of them became a drug dealer, was arrested for murdering another drug dealer, went to jail, came out, was addicted to drugs, and died a sad, sad death. The other man, his life was ruined. He was dealing with substance abuse. They forgot who they were. They started thinking that they were like these other guys. They forgot their core mission. And that's a problem when we get immersed in a culture that for whatever reason we are attracted to, whether it's the money, whether it's the glamour, whether it's the notoriety, it does draw people in, and we have to be aware of that. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the assembly of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Isn't it not better for us to walk and stand and sit with each other in the assembly rather than those in the Kenite, Midianite camp? Note what Jude has to say, echoed by Peter in his second epistle, but Jude, verses 17 through 19 says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. And scoffers are mockers or so dismissive of our faith that they don't even take us seriously. In their view, Christians and Christianity are ridiculous, worthy only of ridicule and slander. Think about how TV and movies portray Christians. When's the last time you saw a Christian character that was not either evil or insane? Yet many Christians, like the Israelites, invite the Kenite Midianites into their camp or willingly join their camp, aligning with them in education, entertainment, and amusement. Think about professional sports nowadays and the political and social messaging that goes on there. Think about Disney Corp. Once thought of as a safe haven for families and their children. Now openly pushing homosexuality and transgenderism. Yet many Christians willingly give vast amount of money to these organizations. We support them. We turn not so blind eye to the evil that they do because we are hooked by what they give to our culture. 
it's interesting that we become puzzled at first and then outraged that our children have taken on these characteristics of the world and have become slowly assimilated into the pagan worldview, forsaking the word of God and his commandments. As Proverbs says in two places, so it's, it's got to be important, it's repeated. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The way of the world is the way of death. Moses, prior to his own death, says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 46 through 47, he says to them, the Israelites, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. It's been said that if we give our children to Caesar to be educated, to be trained, we should not be surprised when they return to us as Romans. Joining these two camps sows disunity in the body of Christ. We find that the faithful are accused of being unchristian, unloving, and unneighborly for not embracing the things which God tells us are an abomination in his sight. And the price that is now demanding to be paid is surrendering family sovereignty over our children to be groomed to embrace homosexuality and transsexuality, surrendering personal sovereignty over our bodies to be experimented upon. However, when it comes to killing a baby in the womb, that's different. A woman then has total autonomy over her body. Whether the baby she lives or dies is to be her choice and her choice alone. And how dare anyone else even have an opinion? We find our English language torn asunder. Personal pronouns are a dangerous minefield to navigate in today's world. One misstep and you can find your professional and personal life blown to smithereens. Words once common and accepted are now forbidden. Words once met one thing and now mean another. There are so many new words associated with human sexuality, it's impossible to keep up. I thought I'd go on the internet and get some examples. There were too many. And you know where I found a lot of them? Were on websites of major universities where there was a glossary of these terms for incoming students so they would know what these words mean and how to use them and when to use them. <laughs> I was really amazed. I shouldn't have been, but, but, but I was. What happens when the language and culture are radically changed? <clears throat> I study history a lot. I enjoy history. I read history as theology. And if you like history, I think that's, that's, that's what you should do. Because in history, reading history, we see how God's decrees are carried out in human time. Everything that occurs is by God's decree. We can see him work 
through history. And it's fascinating when you take that viewpoint and you read history. Recently, I read a, a very good biography of the Lakota Indian um, uh, Crazy Horse. And it was written by a, um, a Lakota historian. And the story he told made me think very much of what we were going through today, where Crazy Horse warned that these people that are coming into our land, the whites, are completely different from us. They do not understand us. They do not want to understand us. They want to take what we have. We need to stay away from them. We outnumber them. We are better fighters than they are. But we have been enticed by the things they offer us, by their goods, by their food, by their meat. Many of the Northern Plains tribes Indians were attracted to these settlements, these forts, because they were given handouts. And these men, these warriors of the Northern Plains tribes forgot how to be warriors. They forgot how to fight. They forgot how to hunt to provide for themselves. They relied entirely on government handouts. And then what happened to the government handouts? They became sparser and sparser and infrequent. And they began to starve. But they had no alternative. They had given up their lifestyle. There's a lesson to be learned there. Not getting into who was right, who was wrong sort of thing, but what may seem to be an easy way, if it's violating your way of life, our way of life, to put it very bluntly, as followers of Christ, then that's too high a price to pay. And that was Crazy Horse's message to his people. The price we're paying is too high and it's going to lead to our annihilation. And it did. So let's not turn such a blind eye to our culture's rebellion against God. As I said before, when I preach to you here at Sovereign Grace, especially in the evening service. I realize that I am, to use the phrase, preaching to the choir. I look out here and I see good, solid Christians who I love dearly. And sometimes I think, Ken, you're haranguing these people and these aren't the people you should be haranguing. So please, if I'm coming across that way, I, I don't intend to. It's just, as I was preparing this message, these are the things that came to my heart. This is what I saw going on with the judges and how I see what's going on in our culture. And I know I've spoken to many, many of you and you see the same things. So I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Unfortunately, I wish it was something we didn't know. And I, and I had a prophetic vision and I could see something coming that I could warn you about. But yet, apparently that's what Crazy Horse had and he wasn't listened to either. So, not that I'm comparing myself um, to him. But God will take us where he will take us, won't, won't he, brothers and sisters? And we, no matter what, must remain faithful to our Lord. We owe him steadfast, loving loyalty because 
he has loved us first with a steadfast, loving loyalty. With that, let's, let's close. Heavenly Father, I give thanks for this time that we were able to be together. Father, bless these brothers and sisters. Father, I'm, I'm just humbled that I'm allowed to stand before them and preach your word, Father. Bless them, protect them, take care of them until we can meet again. Father, we give thanks for this day. I give thanks for the word that was preached at 10 o'clock by Brother Doug that was so wonderful and so rich in, in, a, in a deep theological message, Father. I give thanks for that. I give thanks for the men in this church who are unlike, unlike any church I have been in. Father, thank you for these stalwart, dedicated Christian men who are leading their families and leading their lives as you would have them lead, who have the ability to come into our assembly and share the word with us, Father. What a blessing, what a privilege, and oh, oh so rare. Father, as we go through this week, I just pray that the Holy Spirit guide us, that we be led in the way that we honor you, that we glorify your name, that we're obedient to you, that we carry your message everywhere we go by our obedience, by our knowledge that we are yours for eternity's sake. Father, that we may present your love to others. Bless us, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.